Bem-vindos to one more episode of the Type Theory for All podcast. As always, this is your host Pedro Abreu, and in this episode, we have an amazing conversation with Eduardo Rafael. He's a self-taught programming languages enthusiast, YouTuber, Twitch streamer, multi-skilled programmer that has worked in different aspects of computer science, such as PL, operating systems, blockchain, and many other stuff. In this conversation, we will talk about his experience as a developer and hacker that didn't follow the conventional paths of going to school and what are the strategies to navigate the vast ocean of knowledge without the guidance of teachers or institutions. But before we get into this episode, don't forget to join our Type Theory community on Discord. Becoming a Patreon on Ko-Fi with any amount, you will gain access to exclusive perks such as submit questions to our guests and watching the recordings. Don't wait any longer, go to typetheoryforall.com and become a contributor to the show right now. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. All right, welcome everyone to one more episode of the Type Theory for All podcast. This is your host, Pedro Abreu. And today with me, again, I have my co-host, Dan Dilken. Did I get it right this time? Come on, dude. No, you make the same mistake every time. The Y <laughs> is obviously silent. Plukin. There yeah. you go. I got it now. I got it now. How are you doing, brother? I'm doing all right. Uh, not too bad. Colin from Chicago, Illinois. Beautiful Chicago. How's the weather over there? Uh, it's exactly the same as in Purdue, I think. It's a little bit annoyingly cold, uh, and it warms up d during the day so that you have to kind of shed your coat like, like some kind of animal that, you know, sheds... <laughs> skin over the course I, of the day i don't think it's fair to say that it's kind of like the same because chicago is known as the windy city right the wind city i haven't noticed any wind yet uh, no i guess we're due uh, good we'll see. good but anyways and our our guest today is eduardo rafael welcome to the show eduardo how are you um as they mentioned i'm doing fine uh unlike Unlike then, weather. I'm uh, calling from São Paulo. It's insanely hot, and uh, it's hot all day at this point. So, like, just hot. Dude, São Paulo yeah. is already so hot, and especially now that it's, it's this like very hot time in Brazil. You, you guys must be dying over there. Yeah, like uh, you know, I have AC here, so it's not nearly as bad. But uh, I didn't leave my place for the last five days or so. <laughs> It's just bunked in like against any weather, right? Like, <laughs> that's nice. Yeah, that's dude. pretty much it. Is that because of the heat, or just because you're a really serious programmer? Uh, it's obviously because of a serious <laughs> programmer. <laughs> Dedicated uh, anyway. to his craft. Okay. Anyways, Eduardo, how about we start with you telling us a bit of of your story in computer science? How did you get into programming languages? What are the kind of stuff that interests you? Uh, that's an interesting question overall because it, I'm not sure there is that much of a story. So I have no, you know, formal training. Uh, in fact, I did not finish high school. Uh, so, you know, at some point I start playing, I don't know even how to say it. I start writing code for uh, games, game mode in general. So like uh, San Andreas multiplayer, the, the mod platform for playing GTA San Andreas in multiplayer, I guess, and uh, Minecraft modding. And so I started doing that. And uh, I was about, no, I was about 12 at, 
at that point. And then, you know, seven years later, I got a job as a front-end uh, developer. Then I got a job as a full-stack developer, embedded developer, and a blockchain engineer. And yeah, along the way, I just I was just exposed to a lot. And uh, especially on my first job, I actually needed to, we had a, a huge, not huge, but like a big code base. Um, and we were completely understaffed. So it was uh, three, two to three engineers doing, uh, managing like a huge code base. And so there was some refactoring needed, needed and that's how I got into like, Hey, there is this thing called an AST, which allows you to view the code as code, view the code as data. You can manipulate AST, generate, uh, do some transformations, print the code back. And uh, by doing by doing that, I, I got some some really nice nice improvements uh, over the project. And then we were in AngularJS something, but AngularJS was before we had common JS and yes, modules and whatnot. So the main goal was like, how can we move to something like Webpack, which meant hooking on the Webpack uh, and making making a plugin for Babel, I think at the time, for some reason, I don't remember the, the details, which meant more compile, compiler work, got that in, uh, again, improvements, and then on my third job, where I was working mostly as an embedded developer, I like we were writing C++ and JavaScript, and uh, it was not great. It was just not a great experience. And so I started I start trying, at the time I was playing with ReasonML for front-end, and so I started trying with OCaml native for to see if we could run on those devices. And uh, I never ended up getting that to production, but that get, got me to like a very deep path to like, okay, now you need to learn compilers, now you need to learn uh, programming languages, now you need to understand, okay, what is this type system doing because you want to enforce some invariance. And uh, when I got into the blockchain space, the blockchain space tries to use formal methods to some, to some extent, mostly to like, you know, try to avoid people stealing a hundred million dollars again. Um, and so, yeah, it's pretty much that. And then I just kept going, kept going. And uh, I don't know, <laughs> I learned a bit along the way. That is, that is, that is actually pretty amazing. I'm, I'm impressed, you know, like, because I think the, the kind of stuff that we do here in programming languages and compilers is it's already very hard and, you know, you you didn't you didn't go to university you didn't do any of that that's that's actually pretty impressive to me at least um i really i really like the the part where you like how you got into programming to do to do mods and like to change things that you were playing with that's actually how i got into programming as well i i, I used to to run some some bots like for some mmo that i play and i started you know like getting more more into it and then you have to start doing some some actually scripting right uh, it's it's really fun actually. It's really fun. Good times. Good times. But um, one thing okay. I it makes me wonder is uh, since you you were so 
I mean, you really jumped into learning uh, coding stuff. I, I wonder, do you feel like there's a way that we could be better as educators to when, when people are in school, if, if they want to pursue that type of stuff in school, do you feel like there's maybe like a game-based curriculum or something that you feel would have been, uh, would be effective? Or is it the, just that some people have to go out into the world and, and learn that way? Um, I think it's mostly a failure of math education, in fact. It's like, it helps to, do, to be like, hey, let's do gaming. It helps to do anything that is slightly more concrete to, to people. But at the end of the day, you need to have some level of reasoning, uh, abstract reasoning, and you need to, in my opinion, you need to have algebraic reasoning. You need to be able to, you know, to play around with those elements, with those terms, rewrite them to see what is gonna happen, to follow the execution. Um, and in my case, you know, I always had a, a good time with math. And so when I needed a bit of it, I actually already knew you know, the basics of algebra, elementary algebra and whatnot. And so it was not hard, but I think it's a failure of math because in my opinion, it's by far the best way of developing mathematical maturity is by playing with the things. And at least for, for algebra and even arithmetic um, and trigonometry and a couple more and geometry overall, like writing software for it if you can write the software for it, for it overall, that means that meant that you understand what you're doing. Uh, but because computers are still relatively a recent thing, we don't know exactly how to use use those to like, hey kids, let's play, let's implement uh, whatever equation, and let's see what happens. Um, and for me, that's how I got better at uh, math mathematics o o over time. But yeah, I'm, I am not a strong believer that if we just gamify everything, if we make uh, teaching computer science and uh, mathematics, like playing on Duolingo, and it, you know, I actually like Duolingo, but I think it's just not the, uh, the silver bullet that everyone, everyone tries to, to play for. Mm -hmm. You must have developed some kind of like autodidactic, like teaching yourself skills, um over time or was it always just like oh i happen to be doing this thing and i happen to pick this up and there's really no method to the madness i was the annoying kid uh there is no no mat no, no method just pure madness i think um <laughs> so i was always the kid asking the questions that you should not keep asking and uh you know at some point my parents were really upset at me and i was like okay so it just can't like you know, if I keep asking them, they are not going to answer me. But then I got this amazing thing called the, the internet. <laughs> and uh, getting access to it was pretty good. And so I kept asking questions. I kept going around, trying to figure out what to do next. And uh, I think people miss the point of theory overall. People think that theory exists for like, you know, you studied on the university in this uh, clean room environment. And I'm like, no, the reason why we're doing theory is because we want to do the practical one, but we actually want to have the overview. Like we actually want to understand like why are we doing exactly what, why, uh, what are we doing? And um, if you have some level of mathematical maturity again, I think applying theory becomes natural and then learning 
more or less goes into an exponential curve where at first you're fighting with all the concepts, but at some point they just start to help you out and you get faster. So yeah, for me, there was no madness, uh, no, no method, just madness and a lot of time. Like, I don't know, uh, it's been half of my life at this point and uh, I probably have like 15 to 20,000 hours of playing around with software and computers and uh, hardware and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, that reminds me of, for example, the way that we teach parsers in a programming language course. I think we just go right into the theory when like a parser is the easiest thing in the world to just like try and implement yourself. You end up writing something that's probably recursive descent. And then you'll encounter some of the problems that are with recursive descent. You'll get into these LL ambiguities. And if we just had if we just teach it the other way around, we say, try and do this and then look at what problems you found, especially when I gave you this particular grammar. Um, then you get the theory and you go, oh, I can do this. Oh, I can just write out the rules and I don't even have to write this annoying parser. Although, I mean, there are sometimes a lot of actually mature program, uh, projects still use recursive descent instead of an LR parser generator. But I, 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 I agree totally that we should start with a practical foundation before we start teaching theory. Theory is all about trying to get to that. Especially if you read a paper, it's always like a practical example, and then they yep. develop a theory for it. So why don't we teach it that way? I mean, some of us do, but yeah, I think uh, you know you mentioned teaching parsers and whatnot. I think parsers are by far the the most boring part of <laughs> programming languages. Yeah. And I hate that so many courses. Uh, you know, I was talking to a friend, and he was like, "No, my my compiler's uh, class was essentially." how to write a parser yeah and i'm like yeah yep using that fucking dragon bug yeah exactly <laughs> i'm like dude why that's yeah. the you know there is no fun on that that is yeah. just like there is some fun after a while yeah. but like that's not what you want that's where you, that's not you, where the meat of programming languages is you want to do programming exactly. languages right there is so many much more interesting stuff to be digging down into like the parser and the lexers you know like kind of I don't want to say it's a soft problem because it's not. There's still interesting theory going on. But, you know, like right now, it's just there's a bunch of algorithms that you can just apply, right? So, yeah, uh, he kind of mentioned that it's a soft problem. I know for sure it's not, but it's more or less something like, hey, we actually know how to yeah. do. Yeah. You just yeah. follow a set of rules. Yeah. You apply the you apply the tools properly. Sure, you probably need something better for error messages and whatnot. Many here on OCaml does a, a really good job at that. And maybe you want to go back to recursive descent uh, if you want to go to production and whatnot. But it's like, come on, just give people a parser, let them play with AST, let them, you know, run an interpreter, try try to, to type check STLC or something like that. And uh, it's so much more fun. So, so when, when we were talking about learning things yourself and being an autodidact. Is that, is that a, the word autodidact? Something along those lines. Learning things by yourself. Self-thought. Self-thought. Good. So I've, I've had, I have this feeling sometimes in my life that, you know, like I'm trying to learn something by myself and it's really hard. It's really hard to learn something by yourself because it's, it's as if you're kind of like in this very dark room and you have to keep looking around and like you don't know where anything in this room is and you're trying to find a light bulb to turn on and you can actually see what's going on. So you're completely lost, right? 
And on the other hand, when you when you're actually you know like taking a class or you're you're being taught by someone who's who's already been in that dark room, he will lead you through it and and help you to navigate and make your life kind of easier, right? So there's um, so my question is: Have you ever been somewhere in your life where you're like, I don't know, like I. If I had someone to help me out, or if I knew how to navigate these these things, I would have, you know, like things would have been so much easier for me. Or you know, like probably when you started actually working, you have contact with people who are extremely smart and could help you out. And have you ever felt anything along those lines? What is your thoughts? Um, I think mostly it's a tested skill overall. Like it's something that after a while. I don't feel that much that having a third party helps that much. Besides, when I'm completely, uh, completely locked on something, uh, but you more or less learn how to find knowledge. You more or less learn how to, you know, go through to papers and uh, go through books and try to find. Uh, and then one thing that works super well for me is like trying to find people that are working on whatever am I working but on Twitter and so like hot takes help a lot because <laughs> uh, POT people seem to also love uh, hot takes but you know sometimes uh, it helps and memes you, uh, the I really like the locally nameless one versus Hoas because they didn't knew locally nameless yeah and now I'm the biggest fan and so nice nice it was, you know, it was helpful because uh, at the time I was, I was looking for ways of representing uh, that would make ch uh, type checking easier, and uh, it, it helped me a lot. But yeah, at this point, I don't really think that, uh, I don't really think that asking questions in that way is that helpful to me. But I really think it's helpful to ask um, experts on any topic. Not because of whatever they published, but because of what they don't, uh, what they didn't publish. Right. Yeah. So like the mm -hmm. things that they tried, and it's not worth uh, to publish because it sometimes it just doesn't work. And so you you ask them, hey, why does this naive solution doesn't work? Uh, and they are gonna be like, haha, been there, done that. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't work for A, B, C, D. Yeah. And uh, that is helpful, but it's I also think the the best algorithm overall to learn is the Feynman algorithm it's a it's a joke of like you write down the problem you think real hard on it and then you write down the solution <laughs> it probably works if you if you were Richard Feynman but uh <laughs> to some extent it's great to develop intuition you keep mm. doing that you know you go take a shower because you're sad and then you come back and sometimes uh, you have the solution sometimes you don't so you keep trying and over time, I feel like that helps you to develop a much deeper level of intuition than just like going through directly to through the literature. Right. Of course, it's much more time consuming. It's not yeah. something that you can apply for everything. Uh, but I, I really think it helps like on, on the long on the long term. I was reading Alan Turing's biography and they definitely mentioned that one of the things that Alan Turing would always do if he f is that if you come with him with a problem, he will not, you know, like he will take the problem and leave the room. He will not wait until you explain what's going on. He will try to, you know, like think about it for a while and actually 
both things around. And then after, when he, he actually has some idea of, you know, like he understands the problem, then he would come back and they would discuss. So it's kind of like what you're saying, right? Like you, you first write down the problem and you think really hard about it. Then you're in a position to actually, um, you know, do something with it. Sometimes, yeah. sometimes I feel like, I don't know, like even, even, even going to an, for a nap or actually sleeping helps, right? Like then you wake up. And sometimes the, the solution is just there. It's it's weird. It's weird how the brain works. Yeah, the the neuroscience of sleeping is pretty cool. And uh, for me, it's also definitely a thing. That's why I mentioned, like, you need to put time because you're going to stress yourself as much as you can today. And then you're going right. to sleep. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I noticed that I was very deep into something when whenever I start seeing it on my dreams. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah. People joke around about, you know, I, I dreamed about code and whatnot. It's impressive when we, you dream about code and it actually kind of makes sense when you still wake up. And um, I got some of those over time of like, yeah. hey, my brain is just, I've been just playing around for six months with this. And now I can, now when I sleep, sometimes I see it. And uh, at some points it kind of does make sense and, and it helps. And especially when you wake up, it feels like you, you, your perspective on the problem kind of shifts a lot every time that you go to sleep with something on, on your mind. But that is something that, first, it does not work for mass education because you cannot say, hey, guys, time to take a nap. Let's see, <laughs> Let's see if you learned about parsers or something like that. Um, but I, I think for if you're trying to improve yourself, you should definitely focus on sleep, on sleeping. But I definitely and agree that there is also this point where you have to put in the work. You have to think really hard before, you know, like you take the break. You really have to try it out, right? Get, you know, really understand what's going on. And then the brain will do its thing. Nope. The, you know, did you ever, smart. Did you ever feel like you worked for so long on a problem that you couldn't stand it anymore? Like... Uh, when you get jaded with the food, you know, like you cannot stand that food anymore. Yeah, that's uh, when I mentioned pure madness, I think that's half of the of the thing. I do not have discipline, but I mostly don't get tired of doing the same stuff. Like uh, I can I can keep going and doing and doing it. But in general, I'm never like 100 percent focused on just one thing. So it, it doesn't burn me out uh, at all, but I keep going over and over and over and, uh, to a problem until maybe if I found a solution, maybe I forgot the problem, maybe the problem is not relevant anymore because I was asking, asking the wrong question. That happens uh, quite often. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't have that much the feeling of <laughs> getting jaded and uh, not being able to stand stand up problem anymore. But sometimes things become not interesting anymore for whatever reason. Uh, I, I can still keep going. It's mostly that, I don't know, I, I just wander around a lot and uh, yeah, that kind of works for me. In a way, you're kind of more of a true researcher than we are because in academia, you pick a project and you kind of have to stay with it. It's it's really hard to negotiate your way around it. It's mostly like your advisor wanted you to ask this question. And so you you kind of keep working on that forever. And I, 
I, I know that I've had the most fun and the most, I, I, I am, well, you do have to have a bit of discipline. I, I think you're, you're not giving yourself enough credit for having discipline <laughs> in terms of like the direction that you're going, but that you allow yourself to kind of flow, flow around that, uh, I'm, I'm envious of both Pedro and I are just like, man, that, that sounds like a good way to go about things. Yeah. I think, uh, I, I, we have a question about take uh, later, but um, I think uh, take is a good example of, of that, which is, I was like, oh, okay, Ocamo is, is full of problems. That's not the wording that I used at the time. You can swear in this podcast, it's fine. Oh, okay, so yeah, I was like, Ocamo is full of shit. And I was like, come on, we can do better than that. And then they started wandering uh, around and I played with cock a lot. And then, you know, I knew Hasco. I, I tried again a bit of Hasco, but uh, it felt there was something missing on that. Uh, I think I still think Cock, for example, is the best programming language that we have. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like amazing. Uh, the only problem is programming language is not made of, you know, P, uh, PL researchers. It's also made of a community and tooling. And it's not great when your compiler starts to to give random exceptions because you abused inference too much. And uh, <laughs> the average experience writing cock, it's like, if you stray away just a bit out of LTAC and writing tactics and whatnot, it just becomes a mess. Yeah. And even, even yep. that is just... And so I'm like, okay, can I do better? What, what there is to, to be thought about this problem what are things that are super relevant that we still don't have in languages like OCaml, Haskell, and whatnot? Uh, for me, uh, the answer for both end up being dependent types and linearity. And so, but that is, at that point, I decide, okay, I'm going to make a programming language, going to spend time on it. Uh, is it going to be great? Probably not. But I do need to go through all the steps uh, on design and uh, I've been doing this for a year and a half, and it was a great way of like both widening my 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 knowledge and getting deeper into a couple of things. At first, I was like, "No, we don't need dependent types. Dependent types are too much." I'm like, and now I'm like, dependent types is the bare minimum that we should have. Wow. And so, yeah, some mood swings here and there. <laughs> uh, but yeah, for me, it's mostly. That's the only discipline that I have that is like, I'm keep trying this project because I decide that I'm gonna do it. At some at some points it becomes painful, but I can go away for two months and then I go back and whatnot. But it's not much more than that. For example, I have a deadline for uh, on next Sunday. Um, I'm gonna give more or less a workshop on some of the stuff that I'm working on. And uh, the problem is I just deleted the type checker three days ago. <laughs> and uh, to be fair, it's mostly going to be on a toy version of what I'm working on. And so the new type checker is almost ready. Uh, and I plan to start working on LSP very soon, like today. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so my discipline, it's not great. It's just that whenever I need to put a lot of time, I can oh. do it. So tell us more about about Teika. So you said that it's you were a little fed up with Ocamo and and, and Hasco, even Cock kind of. So your vision is let's try to build something that solves some of these problems. Yep. Right. Uh, 
for me, the, the main goal was exactly that. I described a couple of times as the next generation of ML. So, and I think we have this clear training of like, at first we had a, an ML, which was pretty much Hingley uh, Muner, and then uh, everyone always seems to like system map and wants like uh, higher rank polymorphism and whatnot. And we, we got that through in all of them through some different means. And then we got very deep into modules. Uh, but keep in mind, like module dependent types was not a known thing uh, when modules start showing up and everyone was like, there is something weird about this. Uh, let's say I want to define a module, a local module and whatnot. And that started becoming a problem. And uh, when camel start showing up, like they just decide, okay, let's do a lot of hacks to, to make modules work. And that's how we, you got a camel. Uh, but parallel to that, dependent type theory was going. And uh, and we have a lot of ways nowadays of describing modules without describing dependent types. But all of them lead to some weird things. So for example, you know, can we have, you have functions, plain old functions. You have uh, functors, which are module to module functions. And then at some point people are like, oh, well, we want first class modules because that makes sense. And now you get uh, a function that takes a first class module. Uh, it can return a first class module or not. So uh, you also have first class functors because of course, because functors are modules, you can pack them. Uh, and whenever people start discussing higher kind, uh, like higher kind of types on the core language for Camel, for example, we add another kind of function. So whenever you read about modular implicits and modular explicits, it's another kind of functor, in fact. And it's like, at some point you have five different kinds of functions and they are all do about the same. And you also have type constructors, I forgot about those, which are like just a kind of function. Uh, and you have for alls because just another kind of function. And at some point it's just too much. And so I was like, okay, this does not make sense. And at the time I was asking a couple of questions of like, what is the difference between modules and records? What is the difference between objects and records? And, uh, but, and like modules and records, mostly it's that modules you can depend on types. So you can have a type inside of your record. That's the thing that you cannot do on normal records in a camel. So they are essentially the same, but modules are dependent records. Uh, the same thing goes for what is the difference between functors and uh, normal functions. It's just that functors are dependent uh, functions. Uh, more, more or less, there is some a lot of magic details because of camel is bad. And <laughs> oh, so <yeah. laughs> I was like trying to find, okay, what is going on here? And how can I, can I play around and how can we unify those? And then I got into one ML, which is uh, a calculus from Andreas, uh, I don't know how to say his name. Abel? Was it Andreas Abel? No, no, it's Hosberg. Okay. Uh, yes, Andreas Hosberg, which pretty cool, but it is, but it's still not great. And then I got introduced to a lot of concepts. And uh, at that point I was like, yeah, let's, uh, let's, this, let's go with dependent types. It took me six months to accept that. But after you accept dependent types, everything started making so much more sense. But at the time I, I didn't had intuition for dependent types. And I was like, besides of that, there was this big elephant in the room called Rust, which was like, 
okay, Rust is pretty much OCaml, but something is different. And people say it's the borrow checker and whatnot. Uh, it's mostly about linearity. It's a, Rust is a linear, it's a linear language. And borrow checker is just, you know, sugar to, to that. And I was like, okay. And uh, linearity is really cool because it solves all the problems of like resource management, uh, so, uh, closing and opening sockets, file descriptors. You can even do, you know, uh, manual memory management by hand if you want in a safe way. Especially if you accept dependent types, then then linear types become super cool. And um, yeah, I decided, okay, what happens if I think about a language that has those two features? So it's a dependently type language, uh, but a linear one. And at first I was like, linearity should not be the default. Linearity should be like another kind. So you have normal functions and you have uh, linear functions. But over time I end up noticing that like, it's actually easier to start with purely linear functions and make them more convenient. Uh, a bunch, a bunch of techniques along the way, but uh, yeah, you can do that, and it becomes super convenient and super fast. And you even get a couple of things that only matters if you have dependent types. So that's what I decide. Then I start playing around, and it turns out that everything, everything related to both of those, are bad. Uh, the theory for both are very recent. We did not explore a lot. There is not a lot of uh, type checkers wrote on, on those. Uh, I think, you know, linear types became a thing when uh, Philip Wadler wrote uh, Linear Types Can Change the Word, which is a really good paper, by the way. And not, not that it became a thing, it was already a thing, but like it became popular as a programming language concept. And that was in the 90s. So like, and Rust was the first one to go to production, and it was in 2013. So those are very, very recent uh, ideas overall. And needing to go over over it on the literature, it ended up being fun. <laughs> uh, but a lot of a lot of reading, and uh, yeah. So that's what I've been doing for the past. I think the past year. It's been a year since I accepted. Okay, that's. Those are the goals. And uh, yeah, I think uh, linearity, dependent types, and also, what was the last one? Right, inductive types end up being a real pain. Oh yeah. Uh, and all so, the way with universes and all of that? Uh, no, 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 that's not even the problem because one of the, for me, one of the biggest advantages of accepting linearity, and even if you accept multiplicative linearity, so like, Instead of the function taking one uh, one copy, it can take two, three, four, and copies. But it needs to be a natural number. Um, it's that you gain cut elimination for free, so you can drop universes. You can just have typing type, and your system is still logically consistent and strong normalizing. Because even the untyped lambda calculus, the linear untyped lambda calculus, is strong normalizing, and it's actually a super easy one to to show that that's the case. And so that was one of the Okay, this is cool. This is really cool. If we accept linearity, if we start from there, we actually have strong normalization without going through universes. At first, I was in love with universes, and then I was like, come on, that's so painful. It is. <laughs> it is. Uh, and uh, my, my current opinion on that is that it's just, you know, it's just a, a caveman solution for termination checking. So it's like, 
and, and I know that you know it comes from satire. Rousseau was uh, stratifying things because of his paradox and whatnot. But uh, at the end of the day, I think if we just have termination checker, it's better to accept. Okay, we have type in type; it's way more convenient. Uh, go back to original marking of uh, type theory, and now from that we start building up. And yeah, uh, I had a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun on that. Uh, there is one paper that I really love uh, that teach me a lot about universes in predicativity, which is called Is in Predicativity Implicitly Implicit? from Stephen Monnier uh, from the University of Montreal. Uh, I still mention it a couple of times uh, when, whenever I'm discussing a couple of ideas because it shows a couple interesting relationships and uh, overall I end up, okay, we just need strong normalization and subject reduction. And if we have both, it doesn't matter. Like, I do not care that much about the, you know, the category, uh, ca categorical interpretation of whatever does it mean to be type in type or like, what does, how does that relate to set theory? What I really care about is that I have a rewriting system that has these properties that allow me to depend on everything and that is uh, kind of ergonomic and fast. And so it's a lot, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't know how to interpret the calculus that I have, but I know, well, I don't know because I do not have the proofs, but I have the gut feeling that it has a couple, a couple good, good properties. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think one of so. the main issues with dependent types though is because, you know, like starting, intertwining programming with proving things right so if your if your function type is a little too complex then you end up not only you know like you actually have to come down with all the terms of the proof that that thing is is correct right um did you think about this for Tika? uh i did think in fact uh i think uh actually you know people think about dependent types they think about proofs and uh no offense i think that's one of the failures of uh, the academy here Academia, I don't know how to say that in English, which is independent types for me, it's not about that. It's about like, hey, I have, you know, I want to make an array. And if you have linear types, you can make an array safely. Uh, and I want to take, you know, to make it, I need to know the size of the array. So I have an integer. And I want to say that the integer is bigger than zero or bigger and equal than zero. Sure, you could say, oh, but uh, you can just take a natural. But uh, what if I don't want to have zero sized arrays? What if all my arrays should be bigger than zero? Uh, you can just do that. Oh, is that a proof that, uh, that the length is bigger than zero? Yes, it is a proof. But I, I really don't like thinking about it in that way. It's like, it's just a way of describing, hey, this is a requirement. Here, is, here are all my requirements. Um, and I think if you, do some limitations, especially my solution for that is mostly to um, proof irrelevance plus uh, sub basic subtyping, which is what everyone seems to go in towards. What typing? So it's sorry? like, sorry? What kind of typing you said? Uh, subtyping. Sub so it's like, it's an intersection type, it's a dependent intersection mm -hmm. type uh, plus some subtyping and uh, the main restriction is that only one of the sides can be relevant. Everything else needs to be needs to be irrelevant because then you can erase it. You do not have performance cost, uh, and then you can do your subtyping, your subtyping erasing to both sides. Uh, 
uh, and it becomes super convenient. But even without it, if you can just combine things, if you can just pass pairs around, it's not as bad. It's just that like, n it doesn't mean that if you have dependent types, you need to use them for everything, which is, it's different if you're writing formal proofs, if you're trying to show, you know, if you're trying to show formulas last year, for sure that is gonna be completely different. But if you're writing front end using React, you don't want to like add a hundred constraints on your function. You just want to say, this string needs to have at least a length of five and uh, at most a length of 12, because otherwise it's gonna break my layout. Uh, you want to say that, hey, this request needs to return one of those values because that's your specification. So it needs to return like maybe a 200, a 204 or a 404. It cannot return like uh, a 400 because that is not on the specification. And so things like that is the way that I see the benefit of dependent types and also to educate people about it. Because like uh, we, most people seem to think about, we have generics and then we have, oh, sorry, we have functions and then we have generics. Whenever you drop that, yeah, you just have functions. You have functions from types to values, from values to values, and uh, even the opposite, which is values to types. And so it becomes easier to, to say, hey, you can just write a function. You can just abstract over this. Oh, is it a type? It doesn't matter. Is it a term? It doesn't matter. You just add the function, annotate the type, or if you have inference, just let the compiler figure out. And you, it's one less thing to teach to people. It's like, uh, and that the same goes for modules. It's like, you don't need to teach modules. You just teach, hey, we have records. Oh, by the way, those records, um, they, they're dependent. What are the implications of that? You're gonna learn over time. But you don't need to like keep going concept to concept, one step at a time. You just give a small language, let people play around. Uh, and I think that leads to a much deeper understanding of, of the problems overall. So yeah, that's, uh, that's how, it's a bit of different from how people see dependent types. People see dependent types as like, gonna go to Coq and write a theorem about it yeah, I don't think it's like, I think that's pretty cool, but I don't think that's my goal overall. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I like that. I like that. You know, like making it more digestible in the sense of useful, making it more useful for actual programming languages for you to, to help you instead of hindering you. Right. That's, that's really, that's speaking really nice. of being useful as a programming language, I thought it was interesting that it's a strong, strongly normalizing language, right? It, do you, have you found that to be restrictive at all for some of the programs that you want to express? Uh, I think uh, the, there is a very easy solution. Uh, like you add escape hatch to a monad and now everything that you want, or like hopefully through algebraic effects, but right now it's through a monad. Uh, but it's also like, it's not very common for you to write uh, non-total functions. Whenever you, you know, if you, if I go through the camel standard library, uh, almost everything is automatically strong normalizing. It's very few cases that are like, for example, type checker, type checking is one of, one of the cases that doing it on a strong normalizing language, it's uh, harder to say the least, but, uh, and in the worst case, you're going to hit Godot in complete stream. But, uh, I think. Almost all the cases, you can just decompose your problem 
until almost everything is strong normalizing. And then for the remaining piece, you just tie it using a monadic fix, fixed point and uh, it's really not a problem. Uh, I remember I have a friend, which is also an Okemo developer, uh, Antonio. I remember him playing around with Cock and he was like, oh, so Cock is Turing complete. I thought it, was, it wasn't. I was like, no, you're, you're just not relying on Turing completeness anywhere. You're just like doing structural recursion. You're doing a fold over a list. Uh, you're recursing over an etro. And uh, all of those are very natural. Like people think about a for loop, right? The average for loop is strong normalizing. It goes from a number to another number and that's about it. And uh, yeah, at first I was also like, strong normalization is too big of a, an issue. And I think it is in most cases because that means you need to introduce, like you need to introduce uh, type universes and I think that, that gets annoying quite fast. But if you can avoid that problem, I think it's really convenient and uh, but yeah, I also have a couple of views on how to like bridge the gap between strong normalization and not strong normalization. But overall, for me, the, the main trick is like just color the functions and uh, that's about it. Awesome. Let's go back a little bit when you were saying that yeah. you started working with, with programming languages, with compiler, when you were doing some work with some JavaScript Angular and um, can you tell us a little more, you know, like how was this, this transition into programming? Because apparently you, you found something, because you're still working with it, right? So you, you, you found something that, that, you, that you enjoy, that you, you, you like, then by the way that you were speaking, I would even say that you're, you're, you might be passionate about it, right? So how, how was this? How was finding this and how did you start working and learning more about this? I don't think I was that passionate about it. I, I just think I felt like uh, some dopamine Whenever you know you you make a you make a pull request that is like fifteen thousand lines of code changed, wow. and like five thousand lines of code deleted, you're like, come on, I'm a programmer god now. Uh, and uh, Just it was drug, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like keep keep going, and uh, I think that was mostly how I felt about it uh, on the beginning. Of like, hey, this is super powerful. I can do the the job of like. A uh, hundred men in a week. Uh, of course, it's only if there is the low-hanging fruits and whatnot. But it, it felt really good. But then there, uh, I start also at the time functional programming was getting more popular. Actually, before I started working, that was already the case. I remember watching uh, some go-to on the Lambda calculus, and a friend of mine, uh, an old friend of mine, was making was making compiler videos using functional programming. Uh, and, uh, you know, ES6 had happened, so we had arrow functions. And there was all the drama around promises and the fantasy land drama. That was a fun one. Um, and so I just start kept going. And at some point, I got into OCaml, which was like, come on, static typing is not that bad. Because remember, I was doing Minecraft modding. So my experience with static typing was C and Java, which <laughs> it's bad. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not fun. And so I start playing around with ReasonML, which at the time had some some momentum. And I was like, that's pretty cool. This inference thing. It's like, yeah, at first, you know, their methods are kind of weird. But after 
three months, you're like, no, it makes sense. And then the, from that on, I just kept going, think about it. I made a one or two contributions to a camel. Uh, at some point, uh, I got into backend. I did one that I'm proud of. Uh, at the time, I made I ported uh, OCaml to macOS ARM64, and that is a funny one because I actually had the patch two weeks before the announcement, but I read the news uh, um, because I was porting it to iOS. But uh, I read the news of like everyone was saying, okay, Apple is actually going to move towards uh, ARM64 for their laptops. And I was like, that makes sense. They have the best uh, single core of the market at the time. And uh, I just held the patch. And uh, in one day after, no, I think it was exactly the same day for WWDC. I just showed up with the patch and everyone was like hyped. Arsene, uh, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then we got access to uh, uh, an Apple development kit at the time. And that was a really good one. And so I just kept looking and uh, I, I dived a bit on the camel type checker at some point. I don't think I made that many patches. I, I, think, uh, I think I made one small patch that was not even user facing. Um, but yeah, I kept going. And uh, I don't think programming languages is that special to me. It's like, I've been doing it a lot because I think it's, you know, I've used programming languages daily. But uh, I also got very deep when when I was working uh, as a blockchain engineer. By the way, blockchain engineer here meant I was making a blockchain, not I was writing smart contracts for a blockchain. So distributed systems and whatnot. Um, and uh, yeah, on that job, I actually ended up needing to write compilers and interpreters and virtual machines and things like that on a daily basis. So yeah, that was about it. What are, what are the kind of, of resources that you use to get yourself started with programming languages stuff? Um, my boss at the time, he was like, you seem to understand a bit of programming languages. How much do you learn? Do you understand about type theory? And I was like, I don't know. And he sent me a paper, uh, which is an introduction to system. Uh, it's actually the notes of uh, a professor. It's an introduction to system F, system F, still C to system F omega. And I was like, there is a lot of Greek letters. Um, but at some point I just, uh, I just, you know, s sat on my chair and I was like, okay, let's go and search every one of those Greek letters. And it turns out that it was uh, pretty straightforward. And now I know the Greek alphabet. Uh, <laughs> it's a side effect, I guess. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it was not super, it was not straightforward, but it was not exactly hard. Like people are super afraid of notation. Uh, and I think especially now with something like ChatGPT, you can ask about it, the oh, notation, yeah. yeah. which, but at the time I didn't have it. So yeah. I was like, okay, I probably spent a week just, you know, just learning syntax. And I, I know a lot of programming languages, so learning syntax again was a weird feeling because, you know, most languages share syntax to some extent. Uh, well, of course, Haskell and C don't share syntax, but it's like if you learn one of their family, you can right. you can relate to. Uh, but uh, nowadays, I love Unicode. I think everyone should be using Unicode to program. 
but I know that people are super afraid. So if they see a for all symbol, they just go out, which is sad. But uh, I really like uh, I really like the notation that we use for doing type theory. I think it helps a lot to visualize uh, the concepts and like. And uh, yeah, for right now, I'm a big fan of it. At the time, it was a pain, but I think that's most notation overall. Fair enough. Fair enough. That's nice. Yeah, I was I was curious because you know um, most people that I know usually either start with with software foundation, you know, or or hacking around with with Coq because they knew some Haskell, so that was the the next immediate step, right? Or even um, after that or during that, you take Tuple, right? Like Pierce's Red Book type types yep. and programming languages. I think um, that was the only book that I read in the last couple of years actually no i also read dom kasmuho the the brazilian book it's oh, pretty good that, that's a really good one that's a really good one Hope more but yeah um, but I, I read types and programming languages much later i was i was just i was actually trying to learn about subtyping properly and uh, i opened the book and there was a first it's amazing that the book has a map of like if you, you know the dependency right, yeah. map mm -hmm. for, for each chapter right 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 um and then I just followed the dependency path until I got into subtyping. And uh, I actually ended up reading half or most of the book. I did not do any of the proofs. Uh, but uh, yeah, it, it was a, actually a, a pretty good uh, book and uh, I still recommend it. Yeah. Did you? So we, we, we've been talking a lot about, about Coq, ML, Haskell. Did you, did you play with Lean by any chance? Uh, I did not play with Lean. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, because I I, I'm still curious, you know, like because I definitely agree with you that Cox probably it's probably one of the, you know like it's the most amount of program language engineering that exists. Like it's the most um, robust program language there is. I'm I'm, I'm quite confident of that. Um, maybe I'm wrong, but it is it is a lot of work. It's a masterpiece, I'd say, but. Lean, lean is is also very amazing. <laughs> yeah, lean seems to be better. No, exactly. Overall, like, That's why I ask. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think the main reason why I still like Cox so much is because extraction to a camel feels very natural to me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know the lean strategy to compile and run the program, but uh, yeah, it's amazing. Like, you know, Terence uh, Tao. Terence Tao, yeah. I don't know. Playing with lean yeah. is amazing. Yeah. yeah, people doing proper mathematics. Yeah, um, and here in Brazil we have a couple, couple cool kids uh, teaching lean. Like Sofia did a, a YouTube stream on on, on lean four, and uh, yeah, she got like that, yeah. a thousand views and whatnot. Mm -hmm. I'm like, that's pretty cool, you that's know. Nice. Yeah. Dependent types was not even a thing like five years ago. So uh, seeing someone talking about it, uh, it's pretty cool. And uh, but yeah, I did not play with Lean. I still want to. I still want to play more with Agda. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. I did play a bit with it, but it's not something that that I have a lot of intuition. I want to both learn a, a bit more about homotopy type theory and and also there is a couple cool features in Agda like size types and whatnot mm -hmm. that I want to play around. Yeah, those those are those are fun. Those are pretty cool. There is a lot of of interesting theory 
going on this, in this field. It's it's very exciting. I don't know. I, I feel I feel extremely excited to be living at this moment for you know like in the terms of of type theory because things are just gaining traction. Things are just becoming big. Like Terence Tao doing this tweet, yep. it's it's just such a huge amount of views going on, and like all the eyes are going to be turning to this this stuff now. It's I don't know. I, I feel that it's blowing up. <laughs> it's gonna we're yep. gonna be the cool kids. I don't know. We're yeah, I hope so. I, I think it's. I'm not so optimistic. I would say. But, uh... <laughs> I think so. What I what I what I feel is you know like the the math community and the programming languages community are definitely kind of colliding right now, and that's that's extremely exciting, to me. Yep, I also want to learn more math in general. Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't know a lot of, about it. I just know random topics, and uh, sometimes it's useful. You know. Yeah. I think that's also kind of one of the issues of, of being self-taught, I would say, is because you get very specialized in one thing. And when you go to say, you know, like you go to a course, you get this broader view. You, you do some bunch of stuff that you wouldn't do on your own because it's boring. You don't care or it's not your goals. You I, I don't I don't feel like I have that much uh, on it. It's just that like some topics, for example, the, the classic one for me is linear, linear algebra. Um, I have, I'm interested on it, but you know, I should first probably go to play around and write a game engine or yeah. something like that. Uh, and it's not, it's just, it's something that I know, something that I know about a couple of things about the terminology. I, I know a couple, a couple of the tricks, but I never got too deep. I, I probably would not pass on a linear algebra course, <laughs> a test right now. But I think, you know, at this point, if I, if I spend like a month or two, I, I have enough background to put, put it around. Um, but it also depends on the, on the quality of the course, right? So some, some are pr pretty straightforward. Uh, but yeah, I think, I think it's mostly a matter of like, if you're self-taught and you stop, sure, you're going to suffer that problem. Like if you are afraid of anything, um, and, uh, that also aligns with my view of like, you know, I'm not, I'm not a programming language engineer. I'm not a blockchain engineer. I'm not a front end engineer. I'm just, I can write software. If we, if humanity as a whole knows how to write it, I should be able to in a couple months. And, uh, that means that over, over time, I think my knowledge is getting way broader. So, mm -hmm. like I mentioned, distributed systems. I also know about. Uh, I also know a bit about uh, operating systems, uh, virtual machines, and whatnot. And so, but it's really easy to fall for the trick of like, you know, this is not my domain. Right. Yep. But it's like if you are self-taught, that was not your domain to begin with. <laughs> Nothing's gonna be your domain. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, what are you talking about? Right. Um, but I think. I think it's common for people to to fall for this. Overall, my, my main thing is like, come on. <laughs> That's just kill issue, you know? <laughs> Go there, learn, play play a bit, learn learn a bit. Yeah. But, uh, yep. I really appreciate that when you say, you know, like, just, just don't be afraid. Just 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 go for it. If humanity knows how to do this, there must be some resource that you, that you can catch up if you just spend enough time on it, right? Yeah, that's really nice. What about... What about your motivation for doing Twitch streaming, YouTube coding? Where did that come from? Remote working is sad. 
<laughs> so yes. the same reason why I have this podcast. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's just like remote working is so. I you know I like not needing to leave my place to work, but at the same time on the social aspect is like, not not really that much fun and. Uh, And so at some point I was like, yeah, sure, let's let's do it. And uh, yeah, it, it also helps you to focus a bit because you more or less you you can go you can go and scroll Twitter for five minutes, but if you do more than that, people are like, is that a Twitter stream now? <laughs> um, so you you go back, and uh, yeah, it helps me it helps me focus. And yeah, I've been trying to. I try to do most of whatever I'm doing on Twitch because sometimes there is some people that are actually interested on it. So sometimes we got uh, we got uh, we got people related to papers that uh, that I'm writing uh, that I'm reading. Some sometimes we get uh, people from like uh, people that are working on their programming languages. Uh, sometimes we get just very smart people that are like. Hmm, I think this problem is related to that other problem that you never heard of. Um, but it's also like sometimes it's just cool to go stop and explain to people. Uh, if you can do that well in general, that means that you have a good a good intuition for it. So it's a good way of checking. And f you know, if I go and say that a monad is just a monoid in the category of endofunctors, it doesn't help that much. But it actually helps if you keep going. If you try, okay, sure, you don't know what is a monad, nor an endofunctor, or a category. Okay, let's try to, to go with a monoid. And uh, at some point, you know, some people, not, not everyone, but some people are going to be like, oh, so that's just a monoid. And you show a type signature for them, and they're like, yeah, no, that's just a monoid. Oh, what is a monad then? What is an endofunctor? It's just a functor, same category thingy. Uh, what is a category? Don't focus on that that much now, but like, So here is the type interface for a monad. And now you can see, oh, it's just those two operations. The category is preserved. It's, it's, a good, it's a good way of ensuring that you actually understood the edges of your knowledge. Uh, because otherwise, whenever you go to explain, you can say a monad is just a monad in the category of endofunctors and whatnot. But then what is a monad? What is an endofunctor? What is a category? What is a functor? And uh, I think uh, I think for me it was super helpful overall. That's also how I improved my English a lot. Oh yeah, yeah, I have pretty good English. Yeah, thank you, sir. What What were some of like your first Twitch streams like? You were like really you went online. You were like, I'm gonna work on whatever problem it was, and there were zero viewers, and you kind of did that. What problems were you working on that you? The first ones, I think it was something uh, about front end. Uh, Yeah, I think so. I think I think the first ones I was actually playing with Haskell. Now that I remember, remember, I was like trying to learn Haskell. Uh, but then I start, you know, I start searching for a job again, and then I start uh, writing, um, writing front end for the job application. And uh, yeah, at first it was like five people. Then I. Then I got rated a couple times, uh, and overall, over time, it starts growing up. But uh, there is an issue if you have more than X 
amount of people, it actually starts consuming your time too much. So it's like uh, 50 is pretty much the limit for me. And so sometimes I start caring less about the chat and people get sad uh, and they leave. So it's like overall my stream averages between, uh, when I'm doing it in Portuguese, it averages between like 40 to 60. Oh wow. Uh, in Portuguese, in English, because first most of my public was in Portuguese at first, um, it, it's like 20 to 30 or something like that. It's still plenty, uh, but yeah, it's a bit less. Um, but yeah, it's mostly like go there. As soon as you start to get really deep into premium languages, uh, actually start losing public because some people are great and their feeling is like, I have no idea what you're doing, but I'm going to keep watching. And they keep watching it sometimes for like six months. And they're like, I still don't know what you're doing, but now I know one thing. Uh, <laughs> but some people are just like, come on, I have no idea what this dude is, is working on. Uh, I'm just going to go watch something else. And like, that's fair. It's just that, uh, and, uh, at this point it's like, I cannot just stop and explain everything from scratch. Yeah. yeah every single time it's, someone joins. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's way too much missing knowledge. Uh, but I, I try sometimes to be like, Hey, let's, let's stop and spend an hour seeing, uh, explaining what am I doing? Sometimes when I get, when I get a uh, raid, I'm like, okay, so we have a different public. Let's, uh, let's try to be nice. But yeah, it, for me, it's just like, I don't intend to get, to get money. I don't intend to get famous. I don't just a way of being like working in a more social environment overall. Mm -hmm. That's about it. Working, working from home is weird, right? Because, you know, like, there are so many good things. Like, it's, it's really pleasant, uh, your home and everything else. And you know, often enough, you don't have to deal with some very annoying coworkers or, you know, like, those people who can have those very loud keyboards. Ugh. But um, at the same time, you know, human beings, we are complex and we kind of need this social interaction. Oh, there he is with his. Oh, that that's that's not loud. That's a good one. That's a good keyboard. Yeah, yeah that's not that loud. It's just <laughs> Dude, there, there are some there are some people in my lab. That, oh my god. Anyways, um, yep. but yeah, human beings, it's we, we're we're complex, and we even even though we get frustrated and tired of social interaction, sometimes we just we just need it, right? It's 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 part of being human. But um, one thing one thing that I was gonna say is. You know, I have, I think, I think all from in, in all the platforms to consume knowledge, right? Like we can read papers, we can read books, we can watch YouTube videos, we can have podcasts. There are a bunch of different things. One thing that I have a lot of trouble doing is, is Twitch streaming. And I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't get it because, you know, like, I don't like, I feel that some people really like to have something in the background and, you know, like look at it sometimes and go back to work. I don't. I don't understand, you know, like that, that doesn't work for me. Is there something particular about watching Twitch streams that I think, uh, I think for me, it more or less works, uh, for the same reason for, because of the same reason how I learn, which is completely chaotic. So it's like, if you're reading, if you're doing com something completely unrelated and you're listening to someone talk about something that is slightly like 
it's slightly outside of your domain, uh -huh, uh -huh. but you're more or less understand it. I think uh, you just kind of learn by hearing. So like, <laughs> and that is, you know, that's kind of how most formal education works. It's yeah. just like yep. you're hearing it. And uh, sure, maybe you're, uh, maybe you're super focused. I know for a fact that when I was at school, I was not super focused. <laughs> um, I was probably thinking something completely unrelated. But if you more or less have the, the needed, uh, the dependency tree for the knowledge, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I think, I think you learn, but it's also like, it's just fun. It's just like, uh, you know, people are playing around, uh, sometimes we start discussing something completely unrelated. Sometimes I watch YouTube videos on physics, uh, and math, yeah. mostly on physics nowadays. Um, and it's like, yeah time to watch some YouTube video. Let's, uh, let's watch a YouTube video. And if you don't want to listen now, you just mute and go whatever, do whatever you want. Leave it there. So right. low, low effort, uh, but it's fun, I would say. Right, right. Just, just um, learning by, what's the name? Like Osmosis. Osmosis, yeah, sometimes. Sometimes, right, yeah. Um, okay. Do you have any other question then? You were, you were seeing pensive over there. Yeah, I don't know. I think we covered quite uh, a good span, especially of... Is there anything, uh, Eduardo, that you want to cover? Anything that you want to promote out to our audience? Um, I would just ask, uh, you know, if you want to, if you want to chat, chat a bit, uh, just show up on my stream. is twitch.tv slash Eduardo RFS. Uh, it's just pretty much the same handle as, I, as mine on Twitter. I... I've been doing this language, as I mentioned, I've been writing Teika, which is a dependently linear type language. Uh, hopefully in a couple months, uh, we can have, we can have a couple compelling demos, but yeah, that's about it. Before we finish, I still have, have two more points. First of all, I, I think I saw somewhere in some tweet somewhere that you were planning to get a company out of the ground in the next couple of years. Can you tell us more about that? Um, I think uh, on the next couple of years, I want to start a company. We tried a couple of ideas uh, recently, but it, they were bad ideas. We, uh, me and a friend, we kept working for a month nonstop. And at the end of the month, we were like, this is not going to work at all. So let's go to the next one. Uh, mostly because, I don't know, I think it's a better way of making money in the long term. But also because I kind of like the idea of uh, working on something that is not exact mine is not on something that i believe right and that's that has been a problem for me like uh working on projects that i don't think make any sense yeah i hear and you. so that's about it hopefully you know if uh if i make take a work in the next uh in the next three years hopefully i can work m maybe even a consultancy on the language uh, but I'm not hopeful on that. <laughs> like, I, I, I don't think it's likely to happen, but no. Who knows? Maybe I do a good enough job. But yeah, that's about it. Do you have some, some things that has been in your mind on things that you would really enjoy to make the company on and if you could make it work down that road? Yes. Uh, I think operating systems are all bad and that we should, we should stop relying on virtual memory to to guarantee safety, both because that has been eating our performance. So like 
uh, right now the bottleneck of any HP server has been IO, but not like IO because your network card is too slow or because your SSD is too slow, but because uh, switching to the kernel back and forth, uh, forward is bad. And we, we try things like IO your ring and whatnot. But just to give a notion of how bad it is, Google, Google disabled IO your ring on all Android devices and on their internal servers because it was just like at some point most of the exploits that allowed you to to bypass the kernel was on IOU ring because it's not a trivial problem so I think we should I think it's a good a good time and a good opportunity to start working on a different design uh, for example maybe we could run WebAssembly on the kernel and there is a couple of tricks that would make it, it even faster than than running native x86. But even if you're even if you want to run native x86, uh, x86. x86 uh, you could just there are tricks that you could do to achieve that without dropping the without going full fledged virtual memory hardware support, and also Spectre meltdown uh, versus the recently there was Zenbleed. It's pretty clear that relying on virtual memory to uh, virtual memory to ensure like safety at this point is not, it's not great. And it's gonna keep getting worse. And uh, sure, there is some issues that are inevitable on that. But yeah, I believe that we could, uh, we could do better. The problem is how to make that a company is annoying. I've been thinking on the back of my mind, but I do not have a solution yet. Just come to the Bay Area. People throw money in your face. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> Zero interest rates yeah. are not a thing anymore. Yep. Sadly. It's true. And finally, to wrap up, final question on your on your Twitter. First thing you see that is that you I don't know you hate floating points. Tell us about it. Yeah, I describe myself as an anti-floating point developer. Uh, mostly, you know, people are like, floating points are rational numbers. They are not. They are not. And uh, you may think, oh, no, you know, uh, multiplication is commutative right. and associative, not on floating not point. <laughs> um, division, you know, if you multiply by n and divide by n, it should be equal to x, uh, not on floating point. Uh, if you compare numbers on floating point, you may expect that some behavior is going to be preserved. It's like, yes, but that's only if you're looking at the number. If you put some operations on the left side and the right side, it's not going to preserve. Um, and uh, yeah, I've been bitten by it a lot in the past. And I think for modern computers, unless you're doing something like very compute intensive, just not worth it to have the, just not worth it to have the, the trade-offs. And it's one of those things, it's like no pointer exception, right? Yep, yeah. It's like low hanging fruit. It doesn't hurt anyone to drop that, except you know if you're doing some very crazy optimizations that rely on that. Uh, but it it's so annoying to see you go on a page and the, how much money you need to pay, then. <laughs> like, <laughs> come on. <laughs> and so, what are, what are, and it's also what are the other implementations fun. that we can have instead of floating points? 
uh, I think uh, decimals are better overall, oh, okay. like right, right. Uh, bounded decimals. Mm -hmm. But I, I just think, I think overall, uh, rationals. The problem of rationals is that you need to have at some point you need to trim them down, uh -huh. because uh, otherwise they, you know, the they keep slightly growing over time. Right. Uh, but if you just have a database and you say, hey, I'm going to store up to like 100 digits, that's not going to be your bottleneck. Like uh, it's still crazy fast to do operations on those. Uh, but yeah, there is there is rationals, there is uh, bounded decimals. Uh, there is even binary uh, decimal floating point, which solves some of the problems. So like people are always crazy about dot one plus dot two not being equal to dot three. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that is sold. Yeah. Uh, but it's still, I don't know. I think, uh, I think for most systems, it's just not worth, it's just not a thing that you want to think yeah. about. Like, yeah. come on, commutativity and associativity should be preserved. And that's about it. Dude, I, I, I actually initially asked this question because I hate floating point myself. I, I worked in a job in the Bay Area one time that our job was literally to verify that the floating point unit inside the CPU was correct, right? Because it didn't want <laughs> one of those Intel things. So I had to learn inside yep. out the IEEE 754 thing. Dude, dude, that is so full of corner keys, so nasty. I mean, I, it's I, don't, stupid. I, don't, I don't mean any harm to people who actually done it because I was working with a guy that was one of the, one of the guys behind the 754 and he's He's one of the smartest people I've ever met. Don't get me wrong, okay? But honestly, the feeling that I have is that I was impressed that we that we got to the moon, and this is still the kind of rationals that we, irrational number that we were working with. You know, this is this is it's bad. <laughs> it's 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 bad. Yeah, it, it totally makes sense if you if you remember the if you remember the time that it was made and the requirements. Yeah, yeah. like yeah. it's by far the fastest approximation yep. to rational numbers that we have it's so many corner cases so many things can go wrong there's the, those flags there, there was one point that i was i was very i was extremely confident that i got a bug i caught a bug in our in our implementation and i'm like yes this is a bug because if you look at the ieee this is what is said blah blah blah, blah. and then we send an email to the to this guy in the in, in, the, in there and he's like yeah, I, this is actually a, a common misunderstanding of the spec. I wrote a blog post about it last month, so he just sent me the blog post and it was there, exactly my problem. I'm like... <laughs> <laughs> I understand. Oh man, yeah, it was very frustrating, very frustrating. Anyways, um, I'm glad that I took this out of my chest. So um, Thank you so much for being here. It was a very nice conversation. Thanks, Dan, for for being here in this in this more cold morning for you. Um, yeah, it was very nice meeting you, Eduardo. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me. Well, that was it for today's conversation. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. And I must tell you, I'm impressed. I'm impressed. This dude, he's smart. Honestly, I think he's, he's, he's very smart. And I don't know, I, I, I wish I have had his drive. I feel that I, if I didn't go to classes and the professors didn't force me to learn some things, I would never have, you know, like put a paper and try to figure things out on my own or get a book. 
read through a book. You know, it's it's really hard for me. Sometimes I feel that I I just work under pressure. I don't know. Do you guys have ever ever feel like that? Um, don't forget to join our Discord. Oh yeah, and if you liked this conversation, don't forget to check Raphael on his social media, his stuff. He has a Twitch, YouTube. You can find all of those links in the description of the show. And that's it. That's it for today. Oh yeah, one thing that I wanted to mention is that I had to turn down the comments session in the website because it was really flooding the website with a lot of advertisements. So that was really annoying. So I turned it off. Anyways, I hope to see you guys next time and Merry Christmas. Hopefully we're going to have another episode later this month, but otherwise, Happy New Year as well. Let's go 2024.